All right. Well, I want to, um, like I said, bore down into this a little deeper. I give you a little bit deeper background on the name. Get into naming. You know, Rich and Gary, uh, Pastor Rich Stevenson, Pastor Gary Webb gave gave really good meaning or, or context to the, the biblical significance of naming. I'm going to just bore a little bit into there, and then I'm going to try to answer the question. You know, why? Why change to Maranatha? And uh, and then we'll finish, and and we'll of course get to hot dogs. So. Um, There will be. If you, if you get up and go to Walmart and get us some. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would, uh, that you would fix our hearts upon things above. Uh, elevate us in the moments we have here, just a few, few moments we have here to lift our faces our hearts, our eyes, our focus from the things below to the things above. And do that first and foremost with me. If you don't, I don't really have anything significant to say. We trust you, Jesus. We trust you to, to order our, our hearts that we might take in um, the significance of, of this day and that we might order our lives around it. And so um, here we are, Lord. Do what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. I have... Uh, well, Carol and I literally got back yesterday afternoon from a whirlwind trip. We've been all over the place. I mean, we've been in Israel, all over Israel, incredible meetings with people that we love dearly. Uh, and uh, back into the States, we landed at JFK on Thursday morning where it was minus 16 degrees. Uh, wind chill, standing outside waiting for a shuttle to take us to the rental car place, and I thought we were going to die. And uh, we... We didn't have enough clothes, even when we put on everything we had. And we drove from there to Philadelphia area up to Lancaster, where uh, Rich Stevenson, who you saw in the video, o- oversees the Malachi Network, and met at a board meeting with our Malachi Network brothers and sisters, and uh, and then hopped on a plane yesterday morning, and you know drove or you know drove through beautiful Amish country to the airport, got on an airplane, and got back here to the place we love. And I apparently fell asleep yesterday about 7.30 in my clothes on top of the sheets. But sometime later, I don't know if this is true, but my wife is not like me. She's not prone to embellishing. She said that I rolled over and said, I love my bed. (laughs) So it's good to be home. Maranatha, let's let's unpack this just a bit. It's interesting. Brian made reference to this. Uh, (laughs) I, I love that this is common in our, in our English translation and in our, in our parlance that we oftentimes take words, particularly words from other languages or other cultures or phrases and make them a word. And so, um, you know, hallelujah, for example, we, we think we treat that as a word, um, but it's a, it's a phrase. Maranatha is not a word, it's a phrase. And as Brian said, it's really an Aramaic phrase, which gives my heart great joy that our name is, I believe, embedded in something that's like Galilean Aramaic. Like the connection to Israel really excites me with our name, that our name will proclaim something that at least conceptually was on the lips of Jesus. I say that because the phrase Maranatha uh, only occurs once literally in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, and we'll unpack that in weeks to come. And it's actually not translated 
you know the difference between translation and transliteration? Does anybody, is that, I'm not trying to get too technical. Transliteration is when you take the letters of a word and you, and you take those letters and you bring them over into the English language so that the, f- the phonetic sound of the word, so you go, huh, it sounds like they're saying Maranatha. How would we say it? So you go, M, and you, you write it out. Versus translation, where you're actually taking the concept of what somebody's saying and bringing that into the language. Is that even close, Mel? To, to the, so transliteration. So this word is transliterated. So the Aramaic word is actually brought in by Paul into, into 1 Corinthians 16, and he writes it in Greek, and we get the word, or the Maranatha, out of this phrase. Now, go back really quickly just to that codex. This is what, this is what ancient biblical texts look like. I don't know if you can see them that closely here, but you'll notice as you look at them that there really isn't any punctuation. There's no space between words. And when we're biblical interpreters are handling these ancient texts, it's a challenge to figure out exactly how do we move things around. Where do we put, you know, oftentimes in, in, in scrolls, we have, you ever notice in your Bible where there's like chapter numbers and there might be a heading that says like, you know, then Jesus walked with Peter. You know, that, no, that's just stuff that we put in there. That's not, it wasn't there. And, and sometimes the way they would determine, out how to, determine how to make paragraphs or sentences was just where there was a little break in the page. And oftentimes what we know probably happened is Paul's writing a letter and, and he gets sleepy and falls asleep, wakes up and picks back up his pen to write, and he just moves a little bit. So they go, oh, he moved, so it's a new paragraph. And it's, it's, not, it's not exactly scientific. It's a little bit of guesswork. And so... The, this Maranatha word, you can see it on the next slide. Uh, you'll first see it in the, at the top. That's the Greek. The, 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 below that, I'm not sure if, that is, if that's Aramaic or Hebrew. It's kind of sort of it's Hebrew. And then the third one, I don't think that's Aramaic. It could be that's actually scripted Aramaic or it could be some sort of Syrian uh, derivative language. I don't know. But if you look at the top one, you can kind of sort of make out in the Greek language the English word. That, that first word is the mu or mu, it's the M, A, and then that what looks like a P is the rho and R, and then A, and then that V looking word is the nu, it's the N, and you see that? And you see that, and then the break, and then the A, and then that thing looks like a circle with a line through it is a theta, and an A, so that's atha, the N, that's syllable atha. So that right there says maran atha. Got it? What that means, if you interpret it that, so... So interpreters had to figure out when they looked at this phrase, did it say Maran Atha or go to the next one? Marana Tha. You see the difference? The A goes to the right, it means one thing. The A goes to the left, it means another thing. If the A goes to the right and it's Maran Atha, it means the past with a complete, like the Lord has come. The Lord, the Lord came. It actually means more than just the past. It means in the same way that I would say, you know, if Carol said to me, Becca's coming over for dinner. Hey, is Becca coming? I said, yeah, Becca has come, right? That would mean that she's arrived. It's completed action, but she's here with us. And so when we say the Lord has come, we don't just mean he lived and died and rose again. We mean when we gather together in his name, his presence is a promise. The Lord is come. And so... So there's actually three ways to understand this word past, Moran, Atha, the Lord has come. It's a, and this was the way for about 1,700 years it was predominantly understood. 
as a creedal reminder. It was, it was usually interpreted this way. But there were some early on, and, and most of the scholarship now, it went to this, Marana Thaw, which means, well, it means the Lord is coming, or really what it is, it's a command. It's, it's an imperative voice. It says, come, Lord. Come to us, Lord, which makes it part prayer, part cry, part uh, declaration. And so you can see how it breaks down into, into some different. And when we, the, the cool thing about it is, because we're English and we're, we don't really care about other people's languages, we just co-opt it and use it to mean all that in one word. We don't, we don't say Maranatha or Maranatha. We say Maranatha, right? And, and we mean all that it means in that. So remember that. When you say it, you mean all that. We'll rehearse this a few times so you'll have it down with me. All right. You with me? Kind of? All right. So that's the background. Now let me give you just a little bit more into the biblical significance of naming. Um, this is, it's so cool because really naming is a divine, it's a, it's a divine right. The Lord himself has the right to, to rule and to reign and to, and to name that which he decides to name. Jewish uh, rabbinical tradition, when it discusses the concept that begins in the book of Genesis about uh, Adam being given the, you know, the opportunity to name, basically comments on this saying that the Lord wanted to give this as a gift, the right to name, and brought these all creation before the, the heavenly host and said, what do I call these things? And they said, we don't know. And so he says to man, what do you call this thing? And he says, that's rightly called an ox, and that's rightly called a cow, and that's rightly called a fly, you know, over and over and over again. And then the Lord says, well, what do you call yourself? And he says, Adam, because I come from dust. What do you call me? Adonai. And, and so there's this, and the Lord gives this gift. It's a dominionistic gift that it says we, we have the right to steward, you know, these things. We, don't you, how many of you in... In, in the time waiting for your child to arrive, spent significant time or, you know, praying about names or, you know, or how many of you, I, I know we have a lot of folks here because I love our culture of fostering and adoption, thought about the significance of names when your children were coming into your home. I mean, this is a really, really significant privilege. It's, it's, it's sobering, it's weighty, but it's beautiful at the same time because our name is so tied into our identity, Right? My name is Jeffrey Scott Henderson. It's not something else. That's what my parents named me. I rarely introduce myself that way. Um, I, you know, I, I go by maybe Jeff Henderson or sometimes Jeff or sometimes other things like that might better describe what I'm doing. Like, I, you know, here I'm Pastor Jeff. Uh, things, you know, so our names matter, in, you know, for our identity in a, in, in a massive way. Our names also matter not just because they help to root us in a family, but they also matter because of what our names mean. When you chose your name for your children, you didn't choose the last name. You just, it just is. But you probably spent much time thinking about the significance of the first and middle name. Am I right? Or if you have more than that, um, then, then all those names have meaning. And if you look at the Old Testament, for example, about 90% of Old Testament names have some form of the divine name embedded within them. Oh, they always did, like Daniel. The L in Daniel is, is you know, was, was L. The, the, you know, Joshua has, you know, the, the, the A-H at the end is, is derivative of the divine name, the, you know, Yahweh. All of these names, you know, most of these names have, some don't. Moses, 
Why doesn't Moses have, I mean, Moses is deep. Why doesn't he have the name of God embedded within his name? Because it's an Egyptian name. Yeah, and, and so, they're, 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 you know, the, the, the meanings of our names are important. So, carrying a name like Oakleaf Christian Fellowship was significant because of the meaning of what we were sent here to do. Uh, when we came, Carol and I came here, it was, I always tell people, we started this church with six people. And uh, it was me and my, and my wife and four children. And I kind of jokingly say five of them were church shopping. You know, they weren't quite, you know, not really four, but maybe. And, and you know, we started and we, we felt like the Lord gave us a mandate for an area. Within the first year, that mandate had shifted because of matters beyond our control. And within a year or two, our, our, our name began to have some question to it. But, it. but we kind of opted to the side that it didn't really, really matter. Now, in the Bible, you have opportunities to see people whose names are changed because, for a variety of reasons. Rich mentioned a couple of them. Abram becomes Abraham. I think it's significant in the case of Abram becoming Abraham that he doesn't become Abraham because God's changed him from a sinful identity to a righteous identity. When he's Abram, he trusts God. God says, go to this land that I'll show you. Leave behind your people, your name. Your, you, know, all that, you leave behind all that's significant and go to this land I'll show you. And it says in the most overly simplistic verse of Scripture ever, so Abram went. And, and it was, we learn later it's credited to him as righteousness, that he trusts God in this. And when he gets to the point in Genesis 15 and moving on to cutting covenant that's deep and rooted in this everlasting covenant of promise, God doesn't give him a new name because, you know what, you, you, know, you're, you were bad before. He says that name no longer carries the depth and the significance of this covenant, I now, this, this, this life and this promise. So he changes his name to Abraham. There's a, there's a significant escalation in his name. In the case of, 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 of Simon and Peter, there's something similar that's going on. I think the best example of name change that, it, that, that describes for me what it means for our church to go from OCF, Oakleaf Christian Fellowship, to Maranatha is Saul to Paul. Do, do, you, do you know who changed, how, how, God, how the name changed from Saul to Paul? A lot of people mistakenly think that God changed Saul's name on the road to Damascus. He didn't change his name on the road to Damascus. He remained Saul. And, and I think God was pleased with his name, Saul. It, was a nice, it is a nice Hebrew name. And he continued to live amongst uh, uh, his people with this beautiful name that represented his tribe, his identity, all that he is. But there came a time in the life uh, of the church where Saul's mission got sh- shifted and changed where he was no longer predominantly moving and operating and planting and establishing churches in a, in a predominantly Hebrew context, but in a predominantly Greek or Gentile context. God doesn't say to him, change your name, but strategically he knows that this is something that, 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 will, that makes a lot of sense. And so he, he begins to operate in, these, in the nations as Paul. I feel something like that with our name. I don't think the Lord said to us, you have to change your name or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scrape your building into McGirt's Creek. Um, in fact, I felt so strongly about that that I'd said, okay, Lord, I'm growing impatient. Uh, if we don't have this done by the end of the year, uh, well, I'm just going to keep it the same. And the cool thing about it is uh, I expected it would be a little child that would bring it to me, and it was, it was a, a child of God that really brought the name. Brian is the one who brought the name. And the Lord spoke the name to Brian in like June. 
he just kind of discounted. I mean, it says, I'm not trying to paint Brian in a bad light. Just, that's kind of quirky and kind of weird. And I've been painting like 77 hours a day and I'm inhaling paint fumes and all. I don't know. This could just be me. And, and he began to ponder it and think on it. And, it, and it, it rested on him as being something good, but out there a bit. And so he just kind of held on to it with all this going on. And finally says to me, when we're walking out the door one Sunday after service, when Rich Stevenson was here and preached that day just before Christmas and said, what about Maranatha? And I knew that, that, that I, and I didn't say anything in that moment because we were going to lunch, but called him later that day and said, I, th- I think this is it. And um, the cool thing about it is, and I'll get to this in just a bit, that I had been working quite a bit with our, our family that Stephanie Sandmeyer is connected to FAI on, on, for months have been working on a global release of this name Maranatha for a ministry that's, that's and so I'll get to how that matters to us. So um, I want to say that to say this. Our name change today is not, it's not funeral. It's not about death. It's about growth. It's, it's, it's God giving us this new name for, for this new day for this new season, for this new vision that I think is going to be lived out uh, before your very eyes. And so why change our name from OCF? As you heard, it's an obvious geographic issue. Um, we're not out there. It's hard to explain. It's, you know, as Kevin said, McGirt's Creek Christian Fellowship doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Um, our church is poised for a new day. This new name, I think, by its nature, distributes responsibility and leadership. And I'll get to that in a bit. Also... <laughs> I love, when I, we were at this conference, this meeting in the Galilee, there's a guy who is an incredibly significant player in the life of this FAI world, and he's a retired lieutenant colonel in the IDF who has a very, very significant background in operating in other countries, and, but it, and, and, and oftentimes says kind of the most Jesus-y things, but we're not really sure where he is in his heart. And we open up this conference, he says, you know, he's asked to give an idea of what he thought the framework or the meaning of the day, the, the name, or the meaning of the conference was. And he said, oh, it's, you know, where the old meets the new. Old meets new, something good happens. And I thought to myself, man, that's it. That's exactly where we are. He then got up a couple days later and preached a word expositing the, biblic- the Hebrew word for Love has said, didn't use the word has said, but exposited it deeply, wearing a hoodie that said Maranatha. <laughs> so my mind was in a lot of places. Why? But why change to Maranatha? You know, why do we why do we change to Maranatha? Why not something else? Why Maranatha? Well, the simple answer to that, and you can flip flip slides over. Um, God gave it to us. That's my that's my you know. It, don't you love it when you're in a conversation with somebody and they say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about selling everything I have and moving to, um, you know, Middleburg. And you're like, what? Well, what, what? Nothing good comes out of Middleburg. Why in the world would you ever? <laughs> I, I'm so sorry, Vanessa. I love you. Anybody else here live in Middleburg right now? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of moving to the land of the Hittites. And, uh, and, and you say, why would you go? And you give somebody 14 reasons why it wouldn't make any sense, and then they kind of trump card you, and they go, well, God told me. And then you're like, well, I guess that's the end of the conversation. 
I'm going to play my trump card first and tell you that I don't think I need to run through all these slides. I want to because I want you to, I want you to have the significance and be on board with us. We are so excited about this, but I believe in the depths of my heart, as much as I believe anything about the Lord, that this is a name the Lord's given us. And so that's my starting place. But it is sound theology. That's, that's, a, that's a predominant reason why I love it. It's where I'm starting. It is Christological. Do you see the Christology that's embedded in this name? This, our name is a declaration of what we believe to be true about Jesus. We believe that he's come. We believe that he's coming. We live in between. Right? He came. He's coming. Christ has come. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It exalts the Lord Jesus. It's a name that, that, that glorifies and exalts him. It's a name that, that, that honors and recognizes supremacy. His supremacy. And, and we love that our name will be embedded in that. Also, as I mentioned, I think earlier, I love the fact that Israel is embedded in this, that there is Israelology, that's, and that's very significant and important to me, maybe to you as well. It's sound theology. I'm not going to get into too much detail on any one of these points today because I have about 25 pages of notes that I've been writing, and we're going to spend... Did you know, how many of you, did anybody here pick up on the fact that over the last month and a half, every message we spoke either had an implicit or explicit mention of Maranatha. Anybody pick up on that? Yeah. We, we've been saying it. We've been embedding it in our language, in our prayers, in, in our communication, and, and, and just beneath the surface kind of way. And now, now the baby's born. Um, and so it's sound theology. Secondly, it's our creed. It's a mantra of sorts. It becomes, the, the, it's, it becomes part of our creedal life. It's a, this was, in the early church, a watchword, a password, a greeting, a praise, intercession. Carol said it in the video, if you could hear her. I was trying to speak louder. But she, uh, she said it's more than just a name. It's our song. It's our prayer. It's our cry. It's our greeting. It's our goodbye. In the early church, Many people believe that Shalom became, really gave way in the early church to Maranatha. Because, and I'll give you an example of that later. But it became a significant way in which the early church understood itself. They believed that they were living in the days of the return of the Lord, and, and as we do. And so they um, would use this as a, as a word that covered all of their life, not just one thing. And again, we'll get to that later when we talk about the biblical understanding of, the, uh, of Maranatha. So it's our creed, it's our mantras. Next, it's, it's a word that's fit for eternity. It's a name that's fit for eternity. Now, I love geographic church names. Somebody one time took me to task and said, you know, nobody names their churches geographically anymore. I said, well, tell that to all the churches named in the book of Revelation or the churches in the book of Acts. You know, there's nothing wrong with a geographic name. I think it's an absolutely phenomenal thing. But I love the idea that when we stand before the Lord someday and we talk about this time together, that we'll be able to honor who we, who we were planted as, but we'll be able to say, and then, then one day we stood up and we just cried out together, Maranatha. And then one day we gathered together and we said it in you know, some generation, maybe us, maybe our kids actually looked to the east and said, Maranatha, and saw him coming. It's fit for eternity. It, it connects us to the past, to the historic tradition of the church, Again, I'll show you some of that in a bit and in the weeks to come, how that became a mark of the early church, this, this word, this phrase. It also connects us to the present. We are saying essentially in our name, come, Lord, help us. Help us transform our lives individually. Help us transform our families, our neighborhoods, our, our city, our state, our nation, the world. That's part of our present reality. 
and it's, it encompasses the future. It is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope. The thing that makes me willing to go anywhere and do anything, and I, I hope in discipleship you'll get there with me, you'll come there with me. The thing that makes me willing to go anywhere and do anything is this eternal perspective. There's nothing the world can take away that he can't build back up. He's coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. And this connects us to this blessed hope. All right? Next. It's glocal. I love this cheesy word. I love it. It's become a trendy word to use, and I can't, I have, I've been longing to use this word. And finally, I have the most fitting way to use it. I can't be part of a local church that denies the call and the responsibility to the nations. I don't want to be part of a church that cares so much about the nations it forgets about its neighborhood. I think it's both and. And, and I love the fact that this name actually encompasses our local task to make disciples right here. We are saying right here, come Lord, come right here. And it connects us to the center of God's activity. Now, this one might be a little hard to hear. You've, you, you know, you hear me say this enough, you're, you're probably used to it, but don't Charlie Brown teacher me on this point. Um, the center of God's activity in America, or the center of God's activity in the world is not America. If the only thing you do is read your Bible occasionally, come to church on Sunday morning, you might be living under the mistaken presumption that the center of God's activity in the world is here in America. The fact of the matter is, is that the, is that the center of God's activity has been shifting south and east for a long time. For a long time. Who said that? Yeah, absolutely. You know it. Yeah. You always look to the oldest guys in the room to say, because if they say, you know, you're on good, good track. There's always, there's always people in the room that know more than you. And, and when Bert says it, I go, okay, good. I'm all right. The center of God's activity on earth is not Jacksonville, Florida. It's not even America. It's not the Western world. The center of God's activity is south and east. The president of the seminary where I went wrote a book about this, and actually they did some research on it and said that they believe that the center of God's activity, so that, in other words, all Christians in the world are equally distributed around this. It used to be they would have said around England, and that the typical Christian alive would have been a 35-year-old white dude, and now it's moved. They said the center of God's activity on earth, and I don't know how they, you know, data nerds study this stuff and know it. It's Timbuktu. (laughs) And the typical Christian alive today is like a 17-year-old African woman. It's not a white, western, middle-aged movement. And the sooner we take hold of that, the better. The American church that we're all part of, because we only go to church, you, you, you know, I can't send you to church in Iran. You're here. But the American church needs the Maranatha cry of the nations. We are desperate to be awakened to what the rest of the world knows. And I see it over and over again when I travel places. In fact, when we were just in this gathering in the Galilee, with Christians from all around the world, but predominantly, I would guess, mostly Western Christians. At the end of our conference, we connected with a, with a, with a, a leader who's part of our spiritual family there and his leaders who are in the underground persecuted church of Iran by phone, and we fellowshiped with them, and they blessed us and prayed for us, and they said at the end, Maranatha! <laughs> 
And you feel it released on. You feel it come on. When you're in there and you hear that come out of that context, you know, these people could, they could have been, they could have paid for their, that, that, that cry that night. But it meant something to them to know that they could have a connection back to us. Folks, we need to stop exporting our theology and start importing it. We need to start importing our spirituality from the center of God's activity on earth. One of the reasons that I love our relationship with FAI is because FAI has now launched a ministry that is called Maranatha that is, that is intended to connect the church in a global way. So that our church, Maranatha Church of Jacksonville, is going to be connected to thousands of churches in Southeast Asia, Iran, Iraq, you know, the Middle East, you know, the places that the Lord has us where, where the name of the Lord cannot be named publicly without fear of execution. Those folks have fellowship with us and we have fellowship with them. I think that's important and significant and cool. More about that in the days to come. Next. The name makes us better storytellers. You know, um, the Bible is just a story. It's this beautiful love story. This is beautiful narrative of, of God's redemptive love. A story that has a twist at the very, very beginning that sends it, sets it on its head where you go, wow, that, that, that turned dark quick. I think somebody said that when Rich was here. You know, um, it turns dark quick, and then God is, is working this plan, not, a, not in some sort of confused way, but from, the, from eternity past, then laying out this story of redemption that isn't yet complete, but we know how it's going to end, and we have the best story that's ever been told. The, the nature of good news, if it's good news, is it doesn't need, it, it, it becomes viral, right? This is the way it works. I've said this. I think I shared with you the story of when our firstborn Will was born before the age of cell phones and smartphones and internet and social media, that we made a phone call. I made a phone call. Hey, Will's born. Made a second phone call. Will's born. Third phone call. They said, yeah, we know already. It's the nature of good news. It gets out there. And, and this story that we have to tell is incredible. And it's encapsulated beautifully. In fact, we've been kind of saying in a leadership setting, there may not be a better word to, to, to better single phrase or word for us to, 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 to encapsulate the gospel than Maranatha. The Lord has come. The Lord is coming. We live in between it. The story of redemptive hope is in that story and uh, is in there. And, it's, and the thing is Brian made mention of earlier, it's just quirky enough that it's going to fit who we our personality. I'm so glad that we're not, well, I'm not even going to say, you know, some trendy name. But I'm so glad that our name is just quirky enough that when somebody asks you, what does that mean, that your response is evangelistic. <laughs> when you say to somebody, well, it, 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 uh, the name of our church is Maranatha, and they go, Marijuana? Marijuana? Marathona? It's just quirky enough that you go, no, 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 chill, chill. Um, we can talk about that later, but it's, it means... It means very simply that our faith is embedded in the reality that Jesus came. God in the flesh came, and he dealt with the sin problem and made an opportunity available to us to be in right relationship with him, and he's coming soon to restore all things, where anything that remains broken is going to get fixed. That's what we're named. We believe that, and that's our name. And somebody says either, man, I want to know more, or, you know, well, good for you guys, or I, well, how do I get there? It's, you, you can't say our name without telling the story. 
And as Eric Wilson said, I, I think he said it in the video, he said it so eloquently otherwise, I'd rather spend time telling people about Jesus as a part of explaining our name than explaining to them why we're not an oak leaf. You with me? All right. Let me, let me move on quickly because I'm hungry. I love this about this name, and I'm going to have to unpack this in weeks to come. Um, but let me just get it as best as I can really quickly. I love the fact that it's both inclusive and exclusive. We want Jesus to come into every sphere of our life, right, and bring us hope for healthy, grace-based, holy, redemptive relationships. We want and need him to come. When we say, Lord, come, we know that he can do things that we can't do, and so we want that. We don't want to exclude anyone from that cry. We want everyone to be. We, and so we believe it's inclusive in that every, I believe every great movement of God beginning in, in the book of Acts through history has been inclusive. The gospel is good news for all people, right? So we will not exclude anyone from this church or from the message uh, of who we are and for the invitation to come into our spiritual family. I love, I read this morning, um, th- this month, it's just, we're just kicking off Black History Month. And how many of you know the name William Seymour? William Seymour uh, was the son of emancipated slaves. And he um, loved the Lord. And he came under the leadership of a guy by the name of William Parham. And uh, is that right, Brian? Is it William Parham? Or is it Charles Parham? And um, he, but because of Jim Crow laws in the South, he couldn't sit inside the classroom. He had to sit outside through an open window and listen to the teaching. You know? And, uh, but he gets so deeply caught up in the message that he carries the message with him from the Midwest, I believe in Oklahoma, to, to California. And meets in the home of uh, some folks, and it's a small group that gets so big so quickly the porch collapses. They have to move out of there to a little street called Azusa. And there on Azusa Street, revival breaks out that has touched the world. The Pentecostal charismatic, you don't have to, you don't have to even, you, you could say I'm not really into Pentecostal charismatic theology. That's fine. That's fine. You'd say that. That's fine. I really, it's, it's okay. Um, but William Seymour, a black man who couldn't even walk into a classroom to sit down and listen to a white guy teach white kids, had to sit outside. God used him, every great movement's been inclusive, to go into California to birth the Pentecostal church, the charismatic renewal movement. It has changed the world. If you don't know this, you need to get outside of our little comfort zone in America. The church worldwide, the growth of the church worldwide, is predominantly charismatic Pentecostal. It's just what it is. If you study the global south and and what, what it's comprised of, that's what it looks like. And so every great movement that has touched the world has been inclusive. Read the book of Acts. You'll find when they get it right, it says, you know, hey, the church became multicultural, and it says the Lord added to their number. Every time they get it right, there's growth. And so it's a call on our lives to be inclusive. At the same time, it's exclusive. We, we spent some time in our Malachi network meeting a lot of time, talking and debating about how we fit as an organization within the growing cultural wars that exist in the West and how do we fit ourselves organizationally to be true to who we are but yet be, uh, and to be honest and clear, but at the same time to be graceful and inviting. And what we came to the conclusion of, and I'm so glad we did and I hope you will with us, 
is that this name is also exclusive. When we say Maranatha, we're not saying that some cosmic genie has come. We're not saying some, some you know, um, divine entity force has come. We're not saying that, that, that some mush god who's come to wait on you and meet your needs. Well, that's not who we're saying is coming, who's coming again. What we're saying is the Lord has come, and the Lord is coming. And if you look up that word, Lord, like I did, you know, it's not that hard to get. You have it in your mind already. It means one having power and authority over others. And so what we claim, what we proclaim when we say this name is that this man, Jesus, the most alive man, the only dude who died and beat it, who's alive, more alive than you and I are today, in a body, ruling and reigning from heaven, has the right to rule and reign over our lives. And what he says goes. If Jeff says it and Jesus doesn't, you follow Jesus, not Jeff. If you want to go there and Jesus says no, you follow Jesus. If you don't want to go there and Jesus says go, you follow Jesus. He's Lord. He has the right to rule and reign. His name, his title is exclusive. It's, it's, not, it's not these other things. He's not some divine vending machine. Right? Put in a little money and get the thing we need. I need a little blessing. I need a little this, a little that. He can do what he wants to do. And our heart cry is, come Lord. Come Lord Jesus, your king, your master, your ruler, your sovereign. We surrender our lives to you. We bow down for victory. One of my favorite ways to remember this is I'm so thankful and indebted to C.S. Lewis for all these deep ways of understanding what it means to be... um, in relationship with a sovereign God. And from his book, The Silver Chairs, any, have you, any of you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Have any of you not read it to your children? Heathens. <laughs> Turn off Netflix, buy the Chronicles of Narnia, and read it to your children. Really, I mean it. It's, it'll, it and so from The Silver Chair, one of the characters, her name is Jill, and she meets the figure in this book whose name is Aslan, who is the figure of Jesus. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, this is the Lord. This is a, he, he's massive. If, I mean, I, I, I love the way he's described throughout the city and what he does in every book. And in this particular book, Jill is, she's been struggling. She's dying of thirst. And she comes ap- across a, a beautiful, cool stream that she can drink from and satisfy her thirst. The problem is, as she comes into view of the stream, there's Aslan, and he's sitting in the way of the stream. Anybody know this story? And she says, I am dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I drink, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise me then not to to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. 
I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said Aslan. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That story is a beautiful parable of what I believe about this name, the exclusive side of this name, is there's coming a point in your life, in our lives, where we have to be confronted by this hulking Lord that's perfect in every way who will not move out of our way when, we're, when we need what only he can provide. He says the only way to it is through me. Okay. Two more, quickly. It's both personal and communal. Simple here. Personal. I just got at it a little bit. Here's the personal side. You got to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I can't say Maranatha for you. I can't say it for you. The cry of your heart must be Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. If you're not there yet, come. Be part of who we are. You can belong here before you believe. That's fine. But at the end of the day, what we care about deeply is this becomes the cry of your heart, that it becomes louder and louder and louder, that it's not a whisper. There might be a day coming where we can't say it, you know, as boldly as we can now, but this needs to be the thing we shout and we cry and that we, we praise the Lord with. And it has to get to that point for you. I can't do it for you. So it's personal, but it's also communal. It's our collective cry. It helps us to define what it means to go deep here at Maranatha Church of Jacksonville. As you come closer and closer to the center of who we are as a church, Maranatha gets louder and louder and prouder as it's spurred on by the sharing of our lives. Did you feel today in worship as we were saying together how it built towards something significant? Did you feel that? Maybe it's just in the front where I was. But, it, it, you know, I love being here when you can tell the worship is building. And that's exactly the picture I have in my mind of, a, of, of the collective cry of our heart becoming a louder and louder Maranatha. Finally, it's sacramental. It's a sacred word, just like amen, hallelujah, shalom. These are sacred words that have such deep significance that we almost pollute them with, uh, with, a, with, a, with when we just throw them out there without any understanding. We're going to go deep into this word. It's a sacred word. It was so sacred in the church, in the early church, that it was used as the invitation to the table. And I'm actually going to read this, and then, Emmanuel, would you come? I've asked Emmanuel to pray. He's, he's a dear brother. And um, he is connected through our FAI family to our family. And um, he loves the Lord deeply. So that in and of itself is why I want him to pray. But also I feel like the Lord said to me, have Emmanuel pray because his name is Maranatha. When we say, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, what we're crying out is Maranatha. And I know it's the cry of his heart. So I've asked him to pray. But hear these words, and then, and then Emmanuel will pray. This is from something called the Didache. Anybody here ever heard of the Didache? Other than Bert? <laughs> Gary? Um, the Didache was a document of the early church. It didn't rise to the level of Scripture, but it detailed the way the church did everything. 
baptism, discipleship, communion. And in the Didache, they actually lay out the way they would invite believers to the table, people to come and eat. And when we gather together for communion next time, we'll use words like these. This is, what it, this is the sacredness of this word. This is how they invited people to communion. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Isn't that beautiful? Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come to the table. If anyone is not, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. Come. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, before I, I pray, I feel like I should read this chapter. It's in Revelation 5, so please open your Bible real quick. We'll read the whole chapter and we'll pray. Revelation 5. He said, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll reading, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break his seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, had conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seal. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though he has been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, who are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And, I, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of whom who was seated on the throne. And when he has taken the scroll, the four living creature and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding an harp and a golden boat full of incense, which are the prayer of the saint. And the son a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open his seal. For you were slain and by your blood you rescued people for God from every tribe and language and people a nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I look, and I heard around the throne and the living creature and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and worth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him 
who sit on the throne and to the lamp be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elder fell down and worshiped so lord in this moment we thank you for this time in eternity that you have stopped that you have allowed our life to come together to repurpose to recommit to say indeed maranatha is the cry of our hearts so on this day i pray that you use us you use us as, as the donkey that you use to go into jerusalem you use us as the mud that you have used to make the blind see i pray in any form in any shape that you use us as the cry of our life become maranatha because we understand that your promise you have come Yes indeed you did not just come but you died for us and you not just died because you have nothing else to do but you died because you were the only one who were worthy worthy to hang on that cross worthy to take my place worthy to leave heaven leave the worship of angels and come on this earth and receive the judgment that was due unto me so this morning we do not change the name of this church just because it's the cool thing to do. But we change it because we say, Father God, let it be done on our hearts like it is to you. So as we cry, Maranatha, we cry unto the nation. As we have just read, we pray for every tribe, every tongue, every people group, oh God, that will be aligned around the throne of grace and say, worthy is the Lord Almighty. So today we purpose our hearts to seek after the lost to seek after those who bear your image, to say, yes, indeed, there is no one like you. So, Father God, on this day, as we fellowship, I pray that you ignite a fire within our soul, that indeed we understand that there is no one like you, that your promise as yea and amen, but beyond it, we want our brothers and our sisters to be around the throne of grace as you come back. So, indeed, I pray for a unified bride. I pray for a church that is with us, part of wrinkles. And together, let our Christ be Maranatha.